Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live or via Zoom, please email me and let me know. We can get you plugged in, get you the link for that, or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Lord, we invite you into this space to settle our minds and our hearts, to bring peace, to bring joy, to bring hope, all the things that this Easter season is characterized by, Lord. We pray that they would permeate every part of our life. And in the ways that we might be distracted or unfocused tonight, we just pray, Lord, that whatever the causes of those things may be, we just lay all of our intentions, our worries, our anxieties, all the to-do list items, the things going on today or that are coming in our week, we lay them all at your feet. And we just ask that you give us rest and peace of mind, openness of heart, ears ready to listen, hands, souls ready to receive. And we lay it all at your feet, asking that your will be done, Lord. Bless us each in the ways that we most need it, and guide us especially as we dive into your word. Um, we ask that you challenge us, convict us, receive, help us to receive answers for questions that we have, comfort for things that are weighing down on us, and we just ask, Lord, that your words um, to speak in whatever way we need to each one of us. You knew we would all be here tonight, and you have a specific message for each one of us, and so we pray, Lord, we would each be open and ready to receive it. This time is yours, and we pray all of this in your most precious name, Lord. Amen. 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 The Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to all of you. Tonight we are in John chapter 21, verses 1 through 19. This is the gospel reading for this upcoming Sunday, the third Sunday of Easter. And this is the epilogue, another post-resurrection appearance of Jesus to the disciples, uh, some of the disciples in the gospel of John. So we're going to read verses 1 through 19, twice through, a longer passage. Uh, but this is another narrative passage, so it's really good to kind of paint the picture in your mind. So pretend you've never heard this before, you may never have. Uh, act as though there's a blank canvas in your mind or in front of you. And as you hear these details, try and place yourself in the scene. Pay attention to what you're hearing, what you're seeing, what you're smelling, what you're touching, where you are in the story, what character you are, or how you're observing the scene. And just see what you notice this first time through. So John 21, verses 1 through 19. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. Together were Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we also will come with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. When it was already dawn, Jesus was standing on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, have you caught anything to eat? They answered him, No. So he said to them, Cast the net over the right side of the boat, and you will find something. So they cast it and were not able to pull it in because of the number of fish. So the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tucked in his garment, for he was lightly clad, and jumped into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, for they were not far from shore, only about a hundred yards, dragging the net with the fish. When they climbed out on shore, they saw a charcoal fire with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you just caught. So Simon Peter went over and dragged the net ashore, full of 153 large fish. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come, have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? Because they realized it was the Lord. Jesus came over and took the bread and gave it to them, and in like manner the fish. 
This was now the third time Jesus was revealed to his disciples after being raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was distressed that he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Amen, amen, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to dress yourself and go where you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. He said this signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had said this, Jesus said to him, follow me. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So we have this post-resurrection scene with Jesus appearing to seven-ish of the um, remaining 11 disciples at this point, the apostles. Um, who've gone back to fishing, couldn't catch anything. Very similar to another story we hear at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Reveals himself to them and has this kind of redemptive moment with Peter. Um, so now you have this picture in your mind. We're going to read this a second time. And the second time, as always, I invite you to listen more closely and hang on each word. Hang on each phrase. Try and empty your mind of everything but the scene and the words that you are hearing. And see if a particular word or phrase just stands out to you. Maybe it sparks a memory, a thought, you know, something that you've been praying about or going through. It resonates with you for whatever reason. It doesn't have to have anything to do with what the passage is about. It could literally remind you of something completely different. But if your mind is clear and you're kind of open to the Holy Spirit speaking to you, pay attention to those things that just spark thoughts. Because uh, that definitely is a way that we, we feel the Lord is trying to speak to us. So, a second time through, listen for those little sparking moments where the Lord might be speaking to you. And begin to take note of what those words or phrases are. Asking, what is the Lord trying to say to me through this? Why is this standing out? Second time through, John 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. Together were Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we also will come with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. When it was already dawn, Jesus was standing on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, have you caught anything to eat? They answered him, No. So he said to them, Cast the net over the right side of the boat, and you will find something. So they cast it, and were not able to pull it in because of the number of fish. So the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tucked in his garment, for he was lightly clad, and jumped into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, for they were not far from shore, only about a hundred yards, dragging the net with the fish. When they climbed out on shore, they saw a charcoal fire with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you just caught. So Simon Peter went over and dragged the net ashore full of 153 large fish. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come, have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? Because they realized it was the Lord. Jesus came over and took the bread and gave it to them, and in like manner, the fish. This was now the third time Jesus was revealed to his disciples after being raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, 
tend my sheep. Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was distressed that he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to Jesus, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Amen, amen, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to dress yourself and go where you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. He said this, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had said this, he said to him, follow me. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So a longer passage for this week, but I invite you to look back over the passage and the things that stood out to you, what resonated with you, as well as any questions that this reading may have sparked as you were listening or reflecting on it. And we're just going to take some time at the tables that you're at just to share those things. What are some questions, some things that stood out to you, why you think they did, and then we'll bring that back to the larger group. If you're on Zoom, please share that in the chat, and Katie will make sure it's shared with the group. Or if you're watching this later on YouTube, please share that in the comments. But for those of us here, let's take about five or ten minutes to just share with those around us. <laughs> All right. I'd love to hear some of your thoughts, reflections, questions. Yes, Margo. The whole table, okay. We get that there are certain stories that appear a little bit differently in each of the Gospels. Get that. Uh -huh. This is such a significant difference because the other one, when when um, he appeared to them and with the fishing and all the fishing, okay, we're calling you to be fishers of men. Yes. This was the beginning. Yep. This was the end. Mm -hmm. So which is real? <laughs> <laughs> it's all me. The Jedi. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and it, you, it can all be real. Yeah. There's, there's different literary devices that could have been used. So that original story, some people think that this is a uh, post-resurrection epilogue that was added by someone other than John using pieces from that story, which is in Luke, okay, different gospel. And the reason they say that is because here, uh, James and John are referred to as Zebedee's sons, not the disciple whom Jesus loved. However, later on in this, it does say the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. So it's kind of confusing as there is some continuity with John, but it seems as though we were going to end. Like if you read the previous chapter, verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through this belief you may have life in his name. The end. Oh wait, after this, Jesus revealed himself, and it just seems like it was kind of tacked on there, right? However, this does appear in all of the kind of early gospel, the early copies we have of the Gospel of John. There's no evidence that John ever existed in any form without this ending. So some people think that it was a literary device using some of the details from Luke in terms of like the, uh, the setting, but actually depicting a real post-resurrection event that happened to the apostles. And it doesn't uh, conflict with any of the other timeline things that we have. Some of the other gospels just skip to Pentecost very quickly. But if you look at the sequence of events, you know, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene, he then goes and appears to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He comes back, he appears to the disciples. Thomas is not there. Then he comes back and appears when Thomas is there, second time. And then third time, he appears to them here in Galilee. There's a commissioning in Galilee that happens at the end of Matthew. He commissions them in some way, tells them to stay in Jerusalem. He ascends into heaven, and then he sends the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So none of that is conflicting, especially in English we see words like after this or later on, and we think like, oh, that was like the same day or something. But in the original Greek, it doesn't necessarily imply that. You know, we could look at a word that just says like then or um, a little while later or even something as simple as like, you know, I don't know, just the word then. And in the actual Greek, that could mean a number of days or it could mean the very next thing that happened. So there's nothing wrong, I think, with the timeline but some of the literary devices that are used by all of the gospel writers can make the details a little confusing. It's just that it's so contrasting between the beginning of their calling yeah. and the beginning of their calling. Yeah, that's the part that's so Yeah. Sure. I agree.
agree, Emily. Uh, what's the significance behind 153? Great question. Yeah, so there's a specific number there, 153 fish, right? Um, so a lot of people think they know why this number is used. Uh, and there's probably three or four different reasons. 153 is the sum of all the numbers from 1 to 17 added together. I don't know who figured that out or why that's significant, but that's one reason people come up with. Um, Hebrew, as I've told you before, is a gematriac language, meaning every letter has a numerical designation. They don't have numbers and letters, they just have letters that also mean numbers. So if you spell out in Hebrew the phrase, I am God, it adds up to 153. So that's another thing that's, that people think. St. Jerome, um, who was responsible for translating the Bible into Latin, the Vulgate translation of the Bible, he said that, in his commentary, said that there were known at that time 153 different species of fish in the Sea of Galilee that had been cataloged. So it was, in essence, Jesus catching every single kind of fish as an image for Jesus wanting to go out in the ministry of the church to catch every single kind of person. Um, and then my favorite reason is because uh, all seven of the disciples are fishing, and someone had to remember the numbers so they knew how to evenly divide the fish. So everyone got their share, which I think is a pretty funny reason. Be like, okay, it was 153, right? Nobody's getting an extra fish. Um, even though it's not equally divisible by seven, but I just think that is a funny possibility. So uh, all of those could be uh, correct in some way, or they could all be wrong, but they all have some interesting theological significance or historical significance. So, yeah, Katie. Um, Rick on Zoom has a couple of questions. First, he asked, why didn't Jesus just say, feed my sheep three times? Why substitute lambs? And then also... Did, in Jesus asking Peter, do you love me three times, does it make up for his three-time denial? Yes. So the second question, Rick, um, yes, this is seen as a reversal of the three denials of Jesus by Peter uh, being asked this question, do you love me three times, giving him a chance to repent, a chance to, um, to come back into right relationship with God. Recognize Jesus, when he does that, he doesn't call him Peter. He says, Simon, son of John, he calls him his old name. You know, to almost say, like, all right, you kind of have a chance here. Like, we're starting from square one. Like, do you really want to follow me? And we're going back to the old the old you. Are you really ready? Now that you know everything that is expected, everything that was going to happen, are you ready to repent of, of that denial and really follow me? Um, remind me of Rick's first question. Oh, why does it say uh, feed my lamb? Feed, doesn't say feed my sheep three times. It says feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Um, so in essence, these all kind of mean the same thing. Um, but I've heard um, my spiritual director, in fact, he, he does a lot of ministry with families. And he uses this as an analogy for uh, how we should minister as church. So recognize that Jesus here commissions him to feed the lambs once, so the young ones, and then to tend to the sheep, the older ones, feed the sheep and tend the sheep, the older ones. And so we should be doing more of our ministry to parents, to adults, to families, instead of focusing so much of our energy on children's ministry. Not that children isn't important, but children are part of a family. And, you know, it speaks to this kind of identity, or not this identity, but this potential problem we have in church settings, that we tend to um, educate children and play with adults. And in reality, we should be playing with children and educating adults. Uh, and so whenever you have adult events, there's always these big socials with an open bar and all of these things like that. And then kids, it's like, here's all your requirements to get confirmed. And it's not going to take two days. It's going to take two years, you know? And it's like, it's a lot, you know? And so it kind of speaks to maybe Jesus is getting at here. There's a dynamic that we should really be seeing. And like, yes, he wants the children to come to him. But we also got to make sure that we're not, we're not unevenly focusing our efforts. Um, also, to speak to the young and the old, that the whole family all ages are welcome into the fold. And sometimes that involves feeding. Sometimes that involves tending. The word for tending there is also a synonym for shepherding. So guiding uh, in some capacity. Um, and so sometimes people just need to be fed. Sometimes really people really need to be guided. And then eventually they need to be fed again. And so it speaks to kind of also the cycle of our life in the church. Sometimes we need just that nourishment from the sacraments, from the Eucharist. Sometimes we really need to be guided more deeply in something like spiritual direction or Bible study, really be formed, really be challenged in the way that God is calling us to live. So all of those could be potential reasons. But I think at the end of the day, in the original language, they mean very close to the same thing. So, yeah. Yes? Um, well, going off that, Rick also asked, can you explain how the old and young thing at the end forecasted Peter's way of death? Yes. So you catch this in a verse... 
18, when you were younger, you used to dress yourself and go where you wanted, but, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And he said this signifying what kind of death he would die to glorify God. Uh, how did Peter die? Anyone know? Yeah, he was crucified upside down in Rome, martyred very likely by the Emperor Nero around the year 65 AD. Um, and so that phrase, stretch out your hands, is basically Jesus telling him, you're going to be crucified like I was. Um, and you're going to be led somewhere where you do not want to go. And just as Jesus was dressed by others in a robe, mocking him as king of the Jews, just as he was stripped of his clothing and humiliated and embarrassed, he's telling Peter, basically, look, like this is what... This is what you have in store. And then he invites him a final time to follow him. You know, now that you know, now that you know what your mission is, now that you know what's on the line, now that you know that I am God, I have risen from the dead, but it's also not going to be sunshine and roses. It wasn't going to be like this big military campaign and this great big posse following Jesus and going and overthrowing Rome. Uh, it's not going to be what you thought it was. Uh, are you ready to set aside your fear now, Peter? And I'll, I'll, I'll reconcile you in these three invitations. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Uh, but now here's really what, what it's going to come down to. And the, the incredible part is that Peter says yes. Because, the, in fact, the yes in the beginning was probably a lot easier, even though it was scary, than knowing full well, all right, here's what's going to happen to you. Um, that was probably much harder yes to make. And the faith and the trust that Peter had to have at that moment redeems all of those other moments before it. And so the great thing, a reminder and offering to all of us, right? There are many moments in my life and probably in yours where I failed to trust in the Lord, to have faith, to do the right thing. And yet God keeps calling me back, keeps calling me back. And he acknowledges that he doesn't shy away from acknowledging or helping me be convicted in the moments where I'm like, yeah, no, I need to repent. I need to reconcile or forgive that person or ask for forgiveness. But that, that never means that Jesus is done with me. As long as I'm still breathing, Jesus is still working in my life, has a, a desire uh, a mission for me. I'm saying this for all of you. So that's a great reminder. Yes, sir. Why the right side of the boat? Yes, uh, the right side of the boat. So the Greeks thought the right side was lucky. Um, and this is written in Greek. Um, but it also just, it just kind of shows the power that Jesus has over creation. Um, this is similar, again, to the, um, the passage in Luke, beginning of Luke. Um, and the one in Luke, what happens is, very similar circumstances, Jesus tells them, They've been fishing all night, and at this point, they've actually cleaned their nets off. If you remember that, they've washed their nets, meaning they're like, they're all cleaned up, they're ready to go home, a full night of failed fishing. And Jesus says, hey, go back out in your boat, and cast your, a little while out, a little ways out, and cast your nets again for a catch. And they have the faith to say yes. And they catch so many fish that it says in that passage in Luke that their nets were tearing. And in this passage, it says the nets are not torn. And so this is kind of the literary device that's being used here, is that there's similar details in both pas passages. But what, Jesus, what the writer is basically conveying here is in the beginning, the apostles did not have the capacity to do the mission that they were being given. They, had, they needed Jesus with them. They did not yet have the Holy Spirit. They were still works in progress. They're still works in progress after this, too. But, you know, the nets were tearing. They weren't yet able to go out to that mission, to go out to the whole world. And yet now, catching fish of every kind, the nets are not tearing. Meaning now, Jesus is ready to equip them. They're ready to go out into that mission, to go and bring all kinds of people, all kinds of fish into the fold. Yeah, Marco. I thought they received the Holy Spirit that first night in the upper room when Jesus came in. So that's what I was talking about before. Some of the apostles, some of the writers of the Gospels conflate Pentecost and they put it very early because they don't have any other things in between. Um, and so there was a heresy actually condemned in, I think it was like in the 6th century, it was the Second Council of Constantinople, uh, that, I don't know if it was a heresy, but it was a belief, a false belief, that there was two givings of the Holy Spirit. And people were trying to justify some of these events of the Bible. And the church said, no, like, Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit came. Just some of the Gospels write about that event differently or in different sequences of time because they're writing for particular purposes or they're only recounting certain scenes from that post-resurrection life of Jesus. But we can line them all up and see this is how it happened. So there was one giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead because um, the Feast of Pentecost is an actual Jewish feast. It's not like a symbolic 50 days later. So because we know it happened on that feast, that's why we, we know.
Yeah. Um, why is there already a, like a campfire with fish on there, and they already mm. they get fish too? Yes. So I love you pointed out this detail. Um, well, why is there a campfire? How awesome is this, you guys? That like the savior of the universe, who's just been denied and abandoned, is like. You guys want some breakfast? <laughs> you know, like, imagine, like, being Peter, just, like, so, like, down in the dumps. Like, that's not even a, like, there's not even a phrase to describe how awful Peter probably felt. Jesus had risen from the dead, but he hadn't had this redemption yet. He hadn't had this reconciliation yet. And so he's still, like, struggling to know, like, what am I doing? He's gone back fishing. He's gone to his old way of life. Basically saying, like, I don't know what to do other than what I was always doing before. And it's not clear that he was ever very good at it in the first place. <laughs> It wasn't catching any fish before either. And so he's just completely destitute. And then Jesus shows up. And again, like I had mentioned, when Jesus shows up in the upper room, what does he say? Peace be with you. He doesn't say, I told you so. Or, hey, you all abandoned me. All right, now it's time for you to come up. And it's like, no. You want some breakfast? You know, come on, tiger. Come on over here. I'll make you some breakfast. You know? Um, but this is the really awesome thing, too, about this detail, Jared, that you pointed out about the charcoal fire. The, this word for charcoal fire, anthrakion in Greek, it only appears one other place in the entire Bible. Anyone know where? Anyone know the last time we saw a charcoal fire? When Peter denies Jesus. He's warming himself by a charcoal fire. So imagine, have you ever smelled something and been brought back to a memory? You know, you just smell like, you know, I don't know, cookies or your mom, you know, your mom's cooking a home-cooked meal. You smell rain or you get brought back to a particular time. Imagine Peter coming to shore and the last time, the last time he saw Jesus before the resurrection was when Jesus turned to him in the courtyard of, the, of Caiaphas' house while he was being tortured and while he was denying him. And he was warming himself by a charcoal fire, denying Jesus three times. And Jesus comes back and he invites him to a charcoal fire, being brought basically sensory, you know, sensory vacation back into that moment in his very recent past to be reminded of, of how much he betrayed Jesus. And yet, what does Jesus do? He makes him breakfast. <laughs> makes him breakfast. Uses bread and fish on the shore of the same sea where he performed the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes. Very same sea. The Sea of Tiberias is the Sea of Galilee. It's just another name for it. This is where he performed this miracle. So in essence, reminding Peter of the power he has, who he is, reminding him that he knows, yes, that he denied him, that he predicted it, and yet he's here bringing reconciliation. There's nothing that brings people together like a meal, right? Having people over around a common table, sharing food. I mean, just to, have, to reconcile in that way. And just the love and the mercy that he has for Peter. And I want to point out here, because it's not apparent in English, these three times that, um, that Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? There's four words for love in Greek. And all of them translate to one English word, love. But there are different Greek words for love used throughout this. So there are two that are important for this passage. Um, the other two that are not that important are storgia, which is natural love, like the love we have for our family, and eros, which is like romantic love. It's where we get the word like erotic or, you know, things like that. Um, and then the two other words that are used in this passage are philia, which is like a brotherly love, friendship, Philadelphia, city brother, brotherly love, philanthropy, that's where we get those words, philia. And then agape or agape, and that is sacrificial love. Basically, the love that God has for us that Jesus pours out for us that is arguably near impossible for us to have, but we strive for it in things like marriage, and things like um, self-sacrificing relationships, the love parents are meant to have for their children, and things like that. So agape, sacrificial love, God-like love, and philia, friendship love. Those are the two words that are used here. So I'm going to read this using the Greek words. Simon, son of John, do you agape me? Okay, God-like love. Do you agape me more than these? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I philia you. I love you in a, in a friendship way. That's, that's how I can love you. That's all I have to give. But Jesus says to him, feed my lambs. Jesus says to him the second time, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? The actual word is agapas, the conjugation in Greek. Uh, Jesus said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I philo you, philia. Same thing as the first time. Okay, so Jesus is asking him, can you love me like this? And Peter's saying, no, Lord, but I can love you like this. 
I can love you in this way. And then the third time, listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says to him the third time, Simon, Simon, son of John, do you filio me? Peter was distressed. Why? Because he said to him a third time, but also because Jesus downgrades the type of love he's asking of Peter because Jesus is willing to meet Peter where he's at. In that original Greek, it's a beautiful reminder, a beautiful literary device, too, to show not only is Peter being redeemed, but Jesus is willing to meet him where he is. The doubt that Peter has, the worry that Peter has, am I good enough? Can I love Jesus enough? Can I love Jesus how I'm supposed to love him? And he realizes, no, I can't. It's impossible for me. But I will give Jesus what I can. I will give you this love. Just like Peter was just reminded that moment of the multiplication of the loaves and fish, where a young boy came up and gave all he had, five loaves and two fish, a picnic for him and his family probably. And Jesus was able to turn that very little into something that fit 5,000 plus people. What a great reminder for us that Jesus meets us where we are, that he doesn't expect that we reach some kind of level of perfection or we have to have it all figured out or have the answers to all of our questions before he'll come to us and embrace us and love us and welcome us back home. And even then, even though Peter can't meet that level of love, he says at the end of this, follow me. I still want you. I still want you. It's beautiful. Bruce. Does the word children mm. preview that tenderness that he's about to show us? It does in a, in a way. So there's two words for children that I'm aware of in Greek. One is technon, which means like a child. And the word that Jesus used is paideia, which is a familial term. Um, and, and some commentators say like this, if they didn't know this was Jesus, which they didn't, this could have very, this could have come off as like very snarky. So the actual translation of this, this verse in, in verse five, where it says, children, have you caught anything to eat? The actual translation in Greek says, children, you don't have any fish, do you? And then the word children there, because it's that familial, but he seems like a stranger would have been like, Hey kiddo, you don't have any fish there, do you? And, like, if you're a fisherman who's been fishing all night, night like, it would be very easy to be like, listen here, dude, like, let me come over there and tell you. <laughs> you know, like, it would have been like fighting words, you know, is what some commentators say. But if there is this familiarity, you know, like, if I call a stranger, you know, if I'm, like, driving on the freeway and someone irritates me, I'm like, hey, kiddo, use your blinker. Versus when I look lovingly at my child, I'm like, hey, kiddo, come here. Like, there's ways you can use it that are good and ways you can use it that can be perceived as bad or that are negative. Um, and so I think Jesus means it in a familiar way here, but it very well could have been interpreted as him being very snarky. Yeah, Matt. Has Jesus ever called the um, apostles children before? Um, I, I think so. I don't know where directly, but I think somewhere in those passages where he says, um, um, do not keep the children from me because any anyone who... Um, enters the kingdom, anyone who wants to enter the kingdom must do so like a child or something to that effect. I think around there, he also references them as children to kind of point back to that that uh, scene he just had with the children, you know, not wanting them to be away from him. So I asked that because I was talking to you about how they didn't recognize it. It reminds me of the transfiguration. So yeah. I wonder if it's him using that kind of exemplifies like his divinity like as God the yeah, well, and it also shows, like, there's something different about Jesus resurrected, because Mary Magdalene doesn't recognize him either. She thinks he's the gardener, you know, and so there's something about the resurrected body, the resurrected Jesus that is um, not the same, unfamiliar, you know, more glorious, more perfected, or something like that. And it doesn't really clearly say, you know, what that entails, what it's going to be like for us in resurrected form. We know from Jesus he retains his wounds, and so we may have scars of the wounds that we've had in, in life because they really make us who we are. I think another important, very important, if not the most important note that we can get about heaven in this is that there's food in heaven, y'all. Like, we can eat. Jesus is eating. That's great. Yes. No calories. That's wonderful. You know? Um, but yeah, I do believe he references them as children at some point in the God because he does have that... The rabbi-disciple relationship was very much a father-son relationship. And I want to speak to that for one moment, too, because, um, what time is it? Perfect. Um, this phrase at the end, follow me, in verse 20. Um, I've probably talked about this before, but if you haven't been here, it's good, good for a refresher. There, there was a, a custom at the time with how rabbis called disciples. 
Okay, and this wasn't just something that Jesus did. This is what everyone did. Okay, so I've mentioned this before, but every child, when they were around the age of about five or so, they would start to go to Torah school at the local synagogue. And they would do that for several years, and they would memorize the Old Testament. They'd go to this level of school called Beit Sefer, which means house of the book. And they would learn, memorize the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Memorize it, because it contained the story of how God called them and chose them, and all of their 613 laws for rituals, for sacrifice, and for worship. So they would memorize that by about the age of eight. And then those who were really doing well in school, uh, those young boys who were really doing well in school, the girls would go home and learn the family trade from their mother. They'd learn kind of the, the way of the home. Um, and then the boys who did really well, they would go into the next level of school called Beit Talmud, and they would learn the whole rest of the, of the Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament, and begin to memorize all of that. Memorize three quarters of this book. And you would do that. I mean, there was no phones, no Netflix. They didn't really have much else to do. So it was, you know, it was a lot... It was a lot of their life, but still, like, they would memorize it. And oral tradition was so important. Like, there are some cultures, other than Jewish cultures, that if you got one word wrong in an oral repetition of a sacred text, you were killed on the spot. Now, that didn't happen in Judaism, but in a lot of ancient cultures that surrounded them, that was the, the norm. And so they took this very seriously. And then, around the age of 13, you would have your bar mitzvah. Um, you would become a son of the commandment. That's what bar mitzvah means, around the age of 13. And you would go learn a family trade unless you were the best of the best. And if you were the best of the best, what you would do is you would go interview with a rabbi. And you would basically try and convince that rabbi that you wanted to be their mini-them. You know, that you interpreted the Torah exactly like they did. You wanted to be just like them. You wanted to take on their yoke, which is what it was called, their interpretation of the Torah. And you wanted to be their disciple. And if a rabbi thought you were good enough, he would say the phrase, come follow me. That was the phrase, the common phrase that was used. Now, what's incredible about Jesus is that nobody comes and interviews with Jesus, do they? He goes out and he finds who he wants from the pool of rejects. All of the people who had gone back to their family trade, who were told they weren't good enough, they were never going to amount to anything in the religious hierarchy or in the society uh, as a whole. They were going to have to go live some simple trade. Jesus goes to them and he asks them, come follow me. Even as you are in your midst, in your mess, in the ways that you've been told you're not good enough. And so we sometimes read those passages of just Jesus says, Come follow me, and they drop their nets and they go and like, what the heck? Like, just so easy. But if you know the culture and you know that what Jesus is saying when he says that phrase, come follow me, he's saying, I see you, you're good enough, even though everyone your entire life has told you you're worthless. I see what no one else sees, and I want you to follow me. No wonder. They dropped everything if they'd been told the opposite their entire life. And that's how Jesus looks at you and how he looks at me. Come follow me. So even in Peter's mess, even though he can't offer Jesus the type of love that Jesus is asking for, Jesus meets him where he is. And he tells him, this is not going to be easy. This is going to lead kind of like the road you saw me, but you also see how that ended up. Eternal life, resurrection. So come follow me just as you are. And the other thing I wanted to mention about this scene that I think is really, uh, really uh, pertinent that's not clear in the text is how the Jewish people saw water. <clears throat> I've mentioned this before as well. Large bodies of water to the Jewish people were believed to be where the devil lived. In the beginning, uh, the Spirit of God hovered over the chaos of the waters, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Okay, so water was seen as chaotic, dark. In Genesis 3, when the serpent comes, and deceives humanity. The word used for serpent is not a little snake. We often see a little garden snake. The word in Hebrew is nahash. It means a giant sea serpent or sea dragon. So that is how the devil is characterized, as this great monster of the deep. At the end of time in Revelation, the dragon symbolizing the devil who comes out and sweeps a third of the stars out of heaven comes out of the water. So to be a fisherman meant you were like literally working on the surface of hell. This was a very like death-defying job. Nobody else would have wanted it, okay? So these guys were like the, I don't know, the, the outlaws, the like the, the, the rough and tumble kind of guys of their time. And see what Jesus does in the sequence of events when he encounters them at water. What does he do in the very beginning? He gets in their boat. So in our lives and where we struggle with sin, 
We struggle with the, the attacks of the devil in our boat. Jesus comes in our boat. He's with us there. Then later on, he's with them in the boat, and there's a giant storm swelling up. And we feel like we're overcome by sin. We can't overcome it. Jesus is there. He calms the storm. Then another scene when Jesus appears to them walking on the water, basically walking on the surface of hell, saying, I have power over these demons and evils. And Peter, the audacity that Peter has, says, Peter, Lord, if that is you, call to me, and I will come and walk out to you. Peter risks plunging into the depths of hell, basically, because he has that level of trust in the Lord. And now what happens? Jesus appears to them, not on the water, but out of the water. In essence, saying, now you know the end of the story. The Holy Spirit's coming. You don't even need me to come out there anymore. And what does Peter do? He jumps in the water and swims a hundred a football field to shore. Like that level of just desperation, but also trust and faith that God is who he says he is. Someone asked me the other day, like, do we have any record of people just, like, swimming for fun at this time? I was like, I have no idea. Probably not. I've never heard of it because they were terrified of this type of large body of water. And we still are, right? You know, they go to the ocean during the daytime, like, oh, this is fun. You go to the ocean at nighttime, it's like, you're gonna dip your foot in there? Like, no way, like, you know, I don't know what's gonna come and get me, like, that's terrifying, right? The Kraken is gonna come, you know? Um, all the irrational fears come out. That was how they saw water. And so to be out there all night, on the surface of, of hell, basically, and to Jesus, to Jesus, for Jesus to come beyond the shore and call Peter in faith, for him to jump out of the boat to seek the Lord. Like just that powerful sequence of events, how Jesus is showing through this belief of evil and how they treat water, how now there's this level of victory when we have faith and hope in the Lord. And he starts by just getting in our boat, calming the storm in our boat, calling us out of our boat, and then recognizing you now have all you need to get out of your boat and come to me. You don't even need to worry about evil anymore, sin anymore, the power of the devil anymore, because my power is greater. So just come to shore. All of that at play in this passage, which is really cool stuff that's not clear in the actual text. So sorry for going on and on and on, but I want to make sure we had to, I wanted to get all of that in there. So other questions, reflections, thoughts about all of that or anything else that we haven't talked about yet? Katie? Vicki um, was sharing that she found it interesting that they didn't know it was the Lord when he asked if they caught any fish, but then how quickly Peter knew it was him. Um, when he had asked them to cast the net again. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, it's a disciple whom Jesus loved who says, it is the Lord. And that's why we think we, we don't think this is part of the, the first account, because nobody knew that Jesus was the Messiah yet, right, in the very beginning. They were just coming to understand that. But at the end, when they have this flashback to when Jesus did this the first time, the disciple whom Jesus loved looks at Peter and says, it's the Lord, obviously. And that's why Peter jumps in. You know, that creates that amount of faith that Peter can have to dive into the water. Yeah. Otherwise, they wouldn't have known. If that hadn't been like a repeat, you know, deja vu moment, I don't think they would have, would have recognized him until they were closer or until Jesus decided to reveal himself in some other way, like he did it with the disciples at Emmaus and the breaking of the bread. Yeah. Thanks, Vicki, for that. Greg? And, uh, in trying to fathom like, what's going through those disciples' minds at that time, and thinking about, they spent so much time with Jesus knowing him as he was, and they went through that all that trauma of, uh, uh, well, I mean, not understanding at the Last Supper, you know, the Garden of Gethsemane, and running away, and, you know, and knowing that Jesus was being taken around, and the whole crucifixion thing. I don't know, if, we didn't know where most of these guys were, but we didn't see anything about all the apostles gathered around the cross, but I mean, and then, and then Jesus rising from the dead, and I don't know how long this is supposed to take from, from that time, but then he appears to them, like out of nowhere in the room, twice, and now they're back fishing again. Yeah. So, like, it kind of seems like, did anything stick to him? Yeah, I think. Did Pentecost happen? Well, and the Holy Spirit had not yet come, you know, because this is in the Gospel of John, so we have to follow the, the sequence of events in the Gospel of John. And in that sense, uh, well, he does, he does breathe on them the Holy Spirit. So that's why this, this epilogue is confusing in terms of its place, speaking to what Marco was sharing before. But if we take into the account of the events that Pentecost was actually after this, according to Luke and Acts, um, it says in Scripture, no one can say that Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit. So there would still have been this kind of confusion. 
But I think once Jesus raises from the dead, like the disciples, I think probably don't know, like, okay, well, what, what do we do now? Yeah. You know, like we totally betrayed Jesus. We totally like probably don't feel like good enough to follow him. And now he's back and like better than ever. And what are we doing? Like, you know, what's our job? We're, we're not dead. We didn't rise from the dead. We abandoned him. He's probably fine on his own. But also speaks to something else. You know, you were, you were talking and I was thinking like, well, why didn't they recognize him? Maybe it was because, and maybe we do this too, when we feel like, man, Jesus isn't there or God's not there. Maybe it's because we're looking for a different version of God. You know, they were looking for the Jesus that they knew. And now this new resurrected form of Jesus is there. You know, like any of you struggle with change or God trying to do new things in your life, you know? You know, all this just diverting or a path just forks in the wood and you just have no idea where you are, you know, and we're looking for the same thing. You know, I like to, I like to use the analogy of like life is like we're in a room full of doors and windows. And when an opportunity, you know, presents itself, a door or window or opening and we can go through that. And there might be another room of more doors and windows, but eventually we have to make a decision. But the problem is sometimes we get so fixated on a door. Like, this is what I want. This is what I want. This is the, the life that I had painted for myself. This is where I thought my path was going. And the door might open. We can peek in a little bit and say, like, oh, that's a nice room. I want to go in there. It looks like fun. You know, it looks like that could be really great. And then the door slams in our face. And we can spend hours, weeks, months, years trying to get that door back open, yelling at that door, yelling at God, like, why won't you open this door? And yet, what God wants us to do is simply just turn around and look at the room and recognize, here's all these other open doors and windows. And that, I think, is the human experience. And that, I think, is what the disciples are really struggling with here, is they, they saw this path, this door, this version of Jesus they thought they knew. And that got totally swiped out from under their feet. And now they don't know what to look for. They don't know what to expect. So when Jesus comes before them as he is, of course they don't recognize. You know, it's just like all those stories of those movies where like someone finds something right in front of them that they didn't expect. You know, those like really crummy Hallmark movies when like, sorry if you like Hallmark movies, but like they're all like, you know, the two best friends and then one of them goes and dates everyone. And the other friend's like, yeah, I'll be here to support you, but I like secretly love you. And maybe one day I'll hope you realize like your love was right here under your nose all along. And then of course they discover and it's like happily ever after, you know, right? It's like that. Like, you know, they, they. Exactly. I, yeah, I had a feeling. Oh, yeah. um, the Hallmark Lifetime, you know, all of that. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, We Network, all of that. So, anyways, but all of those movies basically to, to, to communicate, like, when we're looking for something that we think is really going to make us happy, we can neglect what is right in front of us. You know, what, Jesus, what God is offering us right there, right under our nose. Or sometimes God offers us a particular path and we think it's going to come to a particular conclusion, but we don't realize that when that door closes that it brought us to something different that was even better. And we're still waiting and hoping like, oh, I really want that to happen. I really want that outcome. We don't realize like, well, if this hadn't happened, then I wouldn't be able to go through that door or that window, or I wouldn't have met this person, or I wouldn't have, you know, had this experience in my life, been able to share or minister to people from my own experience. You know, it's when we look back on our lives and think about like, you know, the regrets we have or the things that we would have done differently. And, you know, I've done a lot of mess up stuff in my life a long time ago, and I, I wouldn't go back and change any of it because, hello fly, because um, it makes me who I am. Like I can minister in certain ways, I can speak to certain people's struggles because I had them too. And so there's a phrase in theology that sometimes the, the way out is through. Sometimes the way to God is through. It's not around the pain, it's not, circumventing the past or trying to sweep it under the rug, it's through it. It's recognizing like the wounds that we have. That's why Jesus keeps his wounds, to show that there's redemption in them, right? Sometimes the way to who we're becoming and who God is calling us to be is through the wounds. I think all of that is kind of at play in the heart of the disciples here. They just haven't yet realized it yet. A few more minutes, any other... Questions, reflections? Yeah. All right, let me see what else I can add to this. Um, a couple other details. As I said, the Sea of Tiberias is the Sea of Galilee. Um, those there, there's two disciples that are not listed 
In the Gospel of Peter, the apocryphal gospel that, that didn't make it into scripture that was written uh, centuries later, it wasn't part of the public revelation of the gospels, original, or sorry, the, within the lifetime of the original apostles, it says that Andrew and Levi, or Matthew, Andrew and Matthew are, still, are there with them in this account. Um, so those may be who the other two apostles were, if you're curious. Um, we talked about the fact that he says he's going fishing, so kind of implying that he's going back to his old way of life, kind of neglecting what Jesus is calling him to, not knowing what to do next. They cast out the net in faith. He jumps into the sea in faith. Charcoal fire. Let's see. Anything else that I wanted to mention? No, that was it. I think we covered it all. That's great. Usually I have like a thousand other things that I think of. And I probably will as soon as I say amen after closing prayer. I'm like, oh man. So anyways, um, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this word tonight. I just thank you for uh, and just loving us as we are in our mess, calling us to a greater purpose, even though we don't have everything figured out, that you love each one of us as if there were only one of us, that you love us as we are, that we don't need to change in order for you to love us, and when we realize how much you love us, it will begin to change us. And so we pray, Lord, in the ways that you are calling us to change, for our hearts to be more conformed to hope, peace, joy, and love this Easter season that we would be able to set aside our expectations, set aside the things that are causing us anxiety or worry, to set aside the paths or the plans that we thought were laid before us, the doors that have closed, and recognize all the ways that you're seeking to bless us through the doors that are open. And we pray, God, that in all the ways we see ourselves, maybe in Peter, in the ways we've doubted, that we've turned away, that we don't feel that we're worthy or able to love you as you ask us, that you still meet us where we are and call us to follow you. And so we pray, God, that you would help us to see what that means in each one of our lives. What does it mean for us to be your disciples, to follow you more faithfully, to grow a little bit more in faith each day? And if we're at a 2% with you today, Lord, just really distant, really low, really not connected to you at all, Lord, then we pray that you give us the openness to allow you to meet us at that 2% and strive for 3% tomorrow and let you love us there too. Bless us in the midst of this Easter season, each in the ways that we most need it, until we gather again next week. And we pray all of this in your most precious name, Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.